Hello, um, my name is Teresa Stassa and I'm the Canada Research Chair in Information Law and Policy at the University of Ottawa. And I'm really pleased to have the opportunity to talk to you today about uh, some of the work that I do in the area of privacy, in particular some of the things I've been thinking about in, in relation to privacy uh, during the pandemic. And so I've called my uh, the title of my talk is Pandemic Privacy. Um, before I start, I'd like to thank uh, Marcus and the team at the Centre for Ethics for the invitation um, to, to be part of this uh, really great series that, uh, that Marcus has put together. Um, I also want to acknowledge uh, the artist for my privacy background art for Zoom, um, uh, thanks to Carolina Scassa. Um, so my research areas are include privacy law and data governance. And of course, it's not surprising that uh, the pandemic context has raised some really interesting issues in re relation to both areas. Um, and so today, some of the things I thought I'd touch on are um, the, the timing of the pandemic. And I think because I think it's important to think about timing, um, the relationship between public and private sector actors, uh, which is a chronic problem. And I think that the, or a chronic issue and the, the pandemic has um, made it even more significant. Uh, I wanna talk also about the trade-off between privacy and the public interest, something that's also um, been quite significantly highlighted by uh, the pandemic context. Uh, and a little bit about the cultures of privacy and transparency uh, and rapid fire data and technological solutions. So we'll see how much of that I can get to um, in 30 minutes. Um, now I'm gonna have, I'm, you know, I'm in Canada. I've been following the Canadian situation closely. So I do tend to have a Canadian orientation, although uh, many of these issues that I'll, I'll talk about are uh, global ones, and I will give some uh, examples from the broader global context. So um, in terms of, so, so to start with um, the timing issue, um, the pandemic coincides with the rapid expansion of the data society and the data economy. And I think this is really quite significant, the, the, the confluence of those two things. So not only is data uh, clearly important for understanding COVID-19 and its spread, um, and uh, you know, uh, important understanding a whole variety of uh, issues around uh, the disease itself. It's also essential to understanding its impacts on the economy and on society, uh, and uh, and that data is also used to shape government responses to social and economic consequences. So there's no question that data is tremendously important. The data society uh, context, data society, data economy context that we find ourselves in has other implications as well. Um, one of them is that governments want to do more with data and they wanted to do more with data before the pandemic. The pandemic creates kind of an urgent situation or urgent context where um, there's also, where it's driving this need for, uh, for data and uh, data related solutions. Government also has other agendas that existed before the pandemic and that can carry on um, through the pandemic that I think are important to think about. And one of these, of course, is the desire to stimulate the knowledge economy, the information economy, right? So that this was, this was a priority before the pandemic to find ways to encourage um, uh, innovation, to stimulate innovation in this, um, it, rapidly evolving and, and important area of the economy. So this is certainly a preoccupation in Canada, but in other countries as well. So that's something to sort of uh, to, to, to keep in mind and to think about that there's there, there may also be um, another agenda when it comes to um, 
pandemic technological uh, innovations or solutions that they could play a role or fit into a broader underlying objective that existed before the pandemic as well. Um, governments, of course, also need to use data themselves in the pandemic and find ways to use data. And I think that this is also this is interesting because um, to some extent, and certainly in Canada, um, there have been challenges to uh, intra and intergovernmental data sharing, uh, in part because of um, outdated privacy laws, laws that were written for a time where it made uh, more sense to uh, to keep data siloed in, in kind of in, in, in vertical silos as opposed to share horizontally for uh, data analytics purposes. And so to some extent, what we're seeing in the pandemic is, is, is a situation which governments want to be able to share data more quickly within government and across governments. Um, and the barriers that existed before the pandemic um, become more acute in this context. And I think, again, that's an interesting thing to think about because it's something that may lead to um, faster legislative change than we might otherwise have had. And certainly in Ontario, there was some pretty rapid legislative change around um, horizontal data sharing um, specific to the pandemic. When I, if I have time, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. Um, another thing that's important to think about is that private sector companies are looking for opportunities to demonstrate what they can do with data. And they're also looking for opportunities to sell um, their data related services to government. And so um, again, it, you know, it's part of the context, part of the background, but this is um, an, obviously in a crisis or emergency situation, but it is also an opportunity for uh, knowledge-driven businesses to show their stuff. Um, and so that's something to keep in mind. Uh, technological solutions, data-driven technological solutions are being offered to support, to supplement, or to replace um, certain functions that have taken place in more of um, uh, an analog fashion in the past. So tracking, monitoring, testing, and so on. And so we're starting to see uh, or we're seeing that phenomenon in the pandemic context with an acceleration of the development of these types of solutions. And this is another uh, thing to think about. Uh, this is also uh, perhaps a time in which there is more freedom to experiment and to experiment on a large scale uh, because you know, there's a sense of urgency and there's a need for, or a perceived need at least in some cases for solutions uh, that may give more of a license to to try things, to try different things, try new things, to test them really rapidly, to get them out there really rapidly. And that's not necessarily from a privacy perspective, that's not necessarily a good thing from an innovation perspective, it may be. But again, I think it's part of the context that we need to think about when we're thinking about privacy in a pandemic. Um, and of course, related to that is just this uh, incredibly rapid development and deployment of technologies. And we can give contact tracing apps as an example of that, where you know uh, at the beginning of March, nobody was thinking at all about contact tracing, whether it was manual or, or digital. Um, and now we have a number of countries that have already adopted contact tracing apps uh, and many more uh, jurisdictions that are thinking about adopting contact tracing apps, apps and there's a tremendous amount of uh, discussion and debate about privacy in relation to those apps. So things move uh, at a tremendous uh, pace. Um, all of these, uh, these factors that I've identified raise privacy issues um, and they can also create a context in which there are significant immediate as well as long-term privacy impacts. And so I think um, this context in which we find ourselves in is, is one that 
is, a, is something, an element that's worth thinking about. Um, a second thing I wanted to identify, uh, or a second issue I wanted to talk a little bit about was uh, the relationship between public and private sector actors. This is an old hobby horse of mine, so <laughs> forgive me if I uh, flag it as one of the things that's really uh, important in the pandemic context. Um, prior to the pandemic in Canada, there was uh, considerable focus um, on tightening up private sector data protection laws. Um, and th there had been uh, concerns and complaints, uh, studies, reviews of private sector data protection law, particularly the, the federal private sector da data protection law, concerns that it wasn't adequate to, uh, to meet the needs of privacy protection of, of Canadians. Um, there was also a considerable amount of uh, discussion and, de and debate in the United States about the same thing around private sector data privacy. There was the new California law. There were other states that were looking at that had already introduced privacy laws or were looking at doing the same. Um, and so there's there clearly was um, uh, a broad concern about private sector data protection and the extent to which um, it was, you know, it, that it was a thing. In, in fact, that it really was. Uh, adequate um, at all. And uh, this feeds into a sort of a broader concern about the massive levels of private sector data collection. Of course, in Europe, you had the GDPR as a response to this and, and the GDPR setting a much higher threshold for data protection, uh, in part in response to the fact that there is simply a massive uh, collection of personal data that takes place within the private sector. Um, and that it has become over time very difficult to control or to place limits on this with the result that we've had some very significant um, uh, scandals uh, ranging from major privacy breaches to the kind of scandals that we saw with Cambridge Analytica and Facebook where you have uh, in fact data being used um, maliciously to attempt to subvert democratic processes and so on. So, so the, you know, this is a context in which um, private sector data protection was a, a very significant and very serious issue. Um, in fact, just before um, going into this period of, of isolation, I had been talking and writing about Clearview AI, which was, and everybody's forgotten about it now, but at the time it was another one of these major uh, scandals where uh, you had a, a private sector company that was scraping images from publicly accessible websites in order to create a massive facial, facial recognition database that was uh, then part of um, services that were being sold to uh, um, police services across North America and um, apparently uh, beyond North America as well. Um, and so this is, you know, and this was, a, this was again another kind of um, crisis which showed the extent to which uh, personal data was being harvested uh, and used by the private sector. Um, so, um, in the first place, then you have this um, these issues around private sector um, uh, activities and privacy, private sector data collection and privacy, and in the second place, you have the relationship between the public sector and the private sector around privacy issues. And I think that in the Clearview AI example is one where you see. Uh, both of those things in play. You've got this massive data collection, creation of a facial recognition database, but you also see police services, public bodies, public authorities, um, making use of these services without um, the necessary transparency 
um, and, and oversight and accountability that, that that would require. And so you've got right there, you've got this example of the flow of, of data from the private sector to the public sector. And this is something that I want to highlight um, in the pandemic context as something that we have to really be thinking about. Um, so right from the start of the pandemic, for example, we see this the problem of this porosity between private sector collections of data and the public sector. Um, so think back to mid-March, uh, for example, when um, the state of Israel became the first really to not not the first chronologically, but let's say garnered a tremendous amount of attention, attention for a decision to use um, cell phone data for a kind of contact tracing slash quarantine enforcement, monitoring tracking of the population in relation to COVID-19. And that was a very explicit example of a, of a government tapping into, dipping into uh, stores of location data relating to citizens that were in the hands of um, private sector uh, cell phone companies, essentially. Um, and the geolocation, the, the use of geolocation data became a subject for debate and discussion in other countries as well, including Canada, to what extent could perhaps governments tap into this uh, geolocation data that is routinely being collected on a daily basis about um, cell, people who carry their cell phones with them, um, and, uh, and, and to, to what extent might that data be useful in various pandemic-related um, governmental activities. Um, and it's important to think about the fact that this um, uh, location data is collected not just by cell phone companies, but it is also collected by um, companies such as uh, sort of platform companies such as Google or Apple. Um, and it's also collected by a very broad range of apps that people install on their phones and that uh, regularly harvest location data. So there are many different private sector sources of location data. Um, and, and this really should be a wake up call to those who are concerned about privacy. It's been an issue for years. It gets relatively little traction. In Canada, for example, we have an entire system of warrants in the criminal code, um, which govern uh, circumstances in which police want to um, use, uh, use a bug or a tracking device to track uh, individuals. And they have to meet a fairly high threshold in order to get a warrant to do that. At the same time in the criminal code, there's a, much, uh, uh, there's a system with, with a much lower threshold uh, to get a production order to get data in the hands of a third party, such as a private sector company. And in fact, these private sector companies have been tracking us all along. And so the production order that lets you get access to that data gives you access to, um, uh, to fairly rich and fine-grained tracking data. So I think that, that, and I'm giving the example of tracking data here, but I think we also have to think in general terms about the nature, the volume, the kind of information that is being collected on a, a daily, regular, ongoing basis about us and our smart cars and our smart devices and our smart appliances, um, and just how porous the boundaries can be between that data in the hands of the private sector in a context in which we've already accepted or admitted that perhaps our private sector data protection laws are not up to snuff and not protecting individuals to the extent that they should be, and the public sector, whether it's the pandemic or not, um, there's a level of porosity there that should be a matter of concern. Um, and, um, and so I think that 
uh, that this is something that we that the, the pandemic context highlights, but that we need to be aware of uh, and thinking about um, going forward. Now, there may be contexts in which it's okay for there to be that kind of access and where it's appropriate. But it is a context that is worrisome um, and we need to pay attention to those boundaries. Um, another thing that's been happening is private sector companies have begun to produce visualizations based on their vast stores of personal data, uh, visualizations related to the pandemic. And so uh, Google, for example, released some visualizations about um, looking at how much people were how, what, you know what the mobility of people was before the pandemic and or after self-isolation um, or um, social distancing rules were imposed and what it was like afterwards uh, and they produced and published those vis visualizations for the public. Fitbit has uh, produced similar uh, visualizations about ac the activity of people before and after the pandemic and all of this is de-identified data that they're using in order to create these vis visualizations. Um, Facebook has a data for, data for good uh, program um, and makes certain data available for those who want to use it for a variety of different types of analytics, including analytics re relating to COVID-19. Um, and so all of these kind of uses of data in the private sector data in the context of, of the pandemic, de-identified data in the context of the pandemic, leave me feeling a little bit ambivalent. Um, the data may actually be useful alone or in combination with other data, Although I think it's important to be very thoughtful and critical about how good the analytics are and how useful the data actually is. Um, there's lots of garbage data and garbage analytics out there. Um, but the availability of uh, the data itself depends on massive ongoing collection of data about people by all of these different companies. Um, and these data are used for less benevolent purposes as well. And so when you get into this kind of context and you, it, it looks almost as if some of these projects are playing the role of justification for the massive data collection that is ongoing or good PR to support the massive data collection that's ongoing. It kind of puts a, a cloak of benevolence on what is actually uh, hugely problematic, uh, constant and persistent mining of data uh, from humans. Um, so this is another thing I wanna flag in that, in that context. Um, about the relationship between public and private sector actors regarding data privacy. Another thing to think about, of course, is that in Canada, as well as in other jurisdictions, data protection rules are in many ways stricter for public sector actors than they are for private sector actors, which makes it even more important to think about the relationship between public and private sector when it comes to accessing um, those stores of data that have been collected by the private sector. A third theme that I wanted to touch on was the public, the privacy public interest trade-off. Um, privacy is a human right, but it's not absolute. It's often balanced against other rights and interests. And of course, in a pandemic, there's a strong public interest in protecting public health. Um, the measures that have been put in place to protect public health have created severe economic and social hardships for so many individuals. Um, and so there's undoubtedly a very strong public interest in doing whatever possible to reduce the health and economic impacts of the pandemic. Um, and so in that context, you, would, you might say, well, you know, we've got this privacy interest, we've got these very strong public interests, and there has to be some kind of trade-off between privacy and these public interests. Um, and many people will say that they're prepared to give up quite a, a significant degree of privacy in some contexts in order to reduce the impacts of the pandemic. Um, 
And some will argue that as a whole, as a society as a whole, we should be prepared to do that. Um, now, the Federal Privacy Commissioner in Canada has issued some guidelines which talk about necessity and proportionality as guiding principles in designing responses that have privacy impacts as a way of trying to provide a framework for, for carrying out this balancing uh, of interest between um, public and private interests. Many of Canada's federal and provincial privacy commissioners have also issued statements that acknowledge um, that there needs to be a balancing of interests. And I don't disagree with the need for balancing at all, but I do wanna highlight some of the challenges it presents in the pandemic context. First of all, it's not a, a simple trade-off. The devil is always, as they say, in the details. Um, for example, in, in Ontario, um, well, in many places, there's been an issue with first responders needing to know if a person in an incident that they're responding to uh, has tested positive for COVID-19, either to protect themselves if there's been a positive test or they may be trying to apprehend somebody who is telling them, no, no, I'm COVID-19 positive. And so they need to know whether that's true or not. Um, and so in response to that need, Ontario um, issued an emergency order that provides public health, th that provides that public health authorities have to give this information to a first responder um, that asks for it. So it's really interest, it's really easy to see the, the interests that are at play here, the privacy and then the broader public interest. But the issue is, does the order itself properly balance those interests? And I would argue that it doesn't, the, the, the specific order, um, doesn't specify that the request for information about who's, someone who's tested positive has to be for a specific purpose, and there's no um, uh, transparency or accountability mechanisms built into, into the order. And so it's not enough to say, well, sometimes privacy has to be sacrificed in a crisis situation. There are good ways to do it and there are bad ways to do it. And there needs to be a careful and measured response. Now, some trade-offs are difficult to assess. So for example, if you look at contact tracing apps, um, the use of these apps may require individuals to give up some degree of privacy, but how much is necessary or acceptable in the circumstances? And it's clear that not all contact, contact tracing apps are created equal. So it's never a binary choice, contact tracing or no contact tracing. It's, you know, how do we come to the right balance um, that's appropriate in the circumstances? Um, and, and so, um, so, so that becomes the, the challenge, finding that appropriate balance. Beyond this, um, and again, this is part of the challenge of balancing, contact tracing apps are largely untested and unproven technology that carry many risks and offer uncertain benefits. We don't know how good they're gonna be or how useful they're actually going to be. And so how do you do balancing of privacy versus public interest in the context of a technology that is untested or largely untested and unproven? How much experimentation and risk is it acceptable to ask people to bear? And how do you factor that into um, the approach that you take to privacy? Now, if you look at, uh, at the EU, um, which has kind of the GDPR and stronger privacy protections to begin with, you have um, a much more privacy protective approach to contact tracing apps, um, possibly because of the privacy culture that exists there, but possibly also um, because in the, you know, in the balance again, between an experimental technology and privacy interests, that's how that particular balance is set. And so we have to think about um, all of these different ways. Another complicating factor with these technologies is function creep. So it's one thing if you're talking about just one specific technology and how do you strike the balance, 
But there is a concern with things like contract, contact tracing apps, and I'm just using it as one example, um, that there is the potential for function creep, either in terms of the app itself and how it's going to be used. So maybe we have a contact tracing app today, but employers or business owners are going to start to use the presence of that app on your phone as a condition for getting into the business or going back to work. And so then all of a sudden you have a function creep um, that, that has to be considered in terms of the uh, privacy public interest assessment. And there may be function creep in terms of any data that is collected and centrally stored. Um, is it going to be destroyed after the pandemic? When is the state of emergency actually over? Or when is that pandemic period actually over? What purposes might it be used for? Are there risks that the government is gonna to decide to, um, to use it for other purposes? Um, and to some extent, um, the trust or lack of trust in institutions in these contexts can affect how that balance is struck as well. Um, you know, again, uh, another con complicating factor in, in, in assessing this balance is how do you factor in the, into the kind of app to be developed the fact that sharing some data about contacts, infections, and locations might actually help public health authorities better understand how the disease is spread and what are the, the hot points for uh, infection. So is, is, you know, is that something that's worth trading off some privacy for? Um, and again, that's a really uh, difficult um, assessment uh, to make and to factor into. Um, so, so that's the, the, you know, those are some of my thoughts on the, on the, 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 the balance between privacy and, and other interests. It's complicated. Uh, it's certainly not binary. Um, there has to be a proper balancing exercise. And I think we have to think very carefully about what the factors and considerations are that we put into the balance, including the fact that we're in an emergency situation talking about largely untested uh, and unproven technologies uh, and that we have a very vulnerable population. And so, and that may mean a po population that is willing to risk privacy in order to make their circumstances better and, and, and willing to believe that this will make their circumstances better. What does consent to data collection in that context really mean um, when people are, um, are feeling desperate? So some things to think about. I have some questions, I have questions, obviously I don't necessarily have solutions. Um, a fourth point that I wanted to make were, was about uh, cultures of privacy and transparency. Um, and I, I can see that I'm running long here. Uh, I, I even thought at the beginning that I might not have 30 minutes to fill, but I've got lots more than 30 minutes to fill. Um, so maybe I'll just make this point about um, uh, culture, um, the culture of privacy and transparency and then uh, wrap it up. Um, Culture does play a role in, um, in how a society uh, approaches issues of the balance between privacy and other competing interests and so on. Um, the GDPR was a document that reflected a very particular culture of privacy in Europe. It set a standard far higher than what currently exists in Canada and the United States. Um, Canada is currently in the process of considering reform to its private sector data protection laws, including PIPEDA. It may, that may be an indication that as a, as a population, we're looking for stronger privacy protection. How far do we go? How do we understand um, the, the privacy culture in which we find ourselves? Um, in a pandemic, the culture of privacy can play a significant role. In the EU, I think it has uh, driven the development of a decentralized contact tracing app um, that is um, 
or contact tracing solution that is highly protective of privacy, um, although it hasn't had uh, necessarily uh, universal uptake yet, but it is a very privacy protective model. In Canada, we've had our first provincial adoption of a contact tracing app in Alberta. There was no real public debate or discussion over what model to adopt. There was a privacy impact assessment carried out, which hasn't been published. Um, a summary of the PIA has been promised. Um, there's been a cautious endorsement by the provincial privacy com uh, commissioner. In my view, this reflects a passive and paternalistic approach to privacy that's inadequate and inappropriate. Um, but it also may reflect a tendency in Canada to rely on trusted institutions, particularly in a time of crisis. Um, I think what's important to remember here is that trusted institutions only stay trusted if they work at it. And I'm suggesting that Canadian governments may not be working hard enough. And that's a tough thing to say in a pandemic because this is a difficult situation for everyone and there's a lot going on and a lot of competing considerations and things are happening very rapidly. Um, but transparency and accountability are fundamentally important. Um, and, and I think that um, even if decisions are made that may have impacts on privacy, um, there needs to be transparency about that, transparency about the scope um, of the project, about its goals, about its limits, about its experimental nature and transparency about privacy impact assessments, publish them, do them, publish them, let people know. Um, and, and I think that that's how institutions uh, gain and maintain trust by being frank and open about um, what they're trying to do, why they're trying to do it um, and what the issues are that they need to address and need to be accountable for. So um, in terms of, um, uh, just summing up uh, in, in this uh, rapid pace of change, response and development uh, in the uh, pandemic context, um, we need to do privacy right. Um, and we need to, to struggle and to work at doing privacy right. And I do think that many people are currently engaged in this, whether they're privacy scholars or privacy advocates, members of government, um, uh, those working in privacy commissioner offices, um, there are a lot of people turning their attention to this, and, and I think that this is uh, an extremely important objective. Um, as I mentioned, we need to demand both privacy and transparency. Um, the, the privacy values are important. If there's going to be some incursion on them, we have to understand why, we have to know why, and I think that there has to be um, uh, legitimate buy-in. And we talk about informed consent, and I think this is uh, part of that same process. Um, and so transparency beco becomes tremendously important. We need to take a firm stand against both unwarranted and excessive state surveillance, uh, whether it's direct or indirect through private sector stores of data. Um, we also need to be attentive to function creep in relation to technologies that we develop, uh, understanding that, especially when they're being developed very rapidly and on the fly, that, that both those technologies and the data that they are used to collect may become attractive for other uses down the road. And we have to really be thinking and trying to anticipate that and, and, and do privacy around that. Um, and then for the privacy community, we need to keep building networks and coalitions, sharing knowledge uh, and developing privacy friendly technologies. So that's a lot of work for everybody. That's my prescription. Um, and I just wanna thank Marcus again and the uh, Center for Ethics for this opportunity to talk to you. And thank you all of you for your attention. Thanks very much.